Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. In this episode, we're exploring one of the most amazing and moving single stories of the First World War. So amazing that we've brought it to you out of the Dan Snow's History Hit archive so that you can hear it here on the World Wars. It's the story of one woman's relentless search for her missing son's body after World War I. A story with incredible twists and turns. To explore and explain all, Dan talks with Richard Van Emden, the author and television producer who specialises in the First World War. Together, they focus on this story and the broader national history of that search that took place for the tens of thousands of war dead after the Great War. In fact, it's a sad and surprising reality to find out just how many mistakes were made in identifying the dead when the exhumation parties were under such intolerable pressures. This is a tragic but fascinating history. Richard, you emailed me the other day and you said to me, I've got the greatest story ever told. And I said, come on the podcast. <laughs> That's some big, you, you need to deliver now. Let's hear, what is it? Okay, well, I can tell you, I've been, the Great War has been my passion for 35 years. I have never discovered a story as complete, a single story as complete as this one. And I came across it in the archives, um, oh, probably 10 years ago originally. And I thought, wow, this is a heck of a story. And, you know, as with all these things, I sort of put it to one side. And I thought, well, I'm going to, a couple of years ago, I thought, well, I'm going to get on with this. And... It, it's just the most amazing story of one woman's devotion, maybe even obsession about her missing son in the Great War. But the incredible thing was there was a certain amount of material out there, was a certain amount at the, um, uh, at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Uh, but I needed more. And I got onto the, you know, the internet that people do and I found a relative and I said, look, this is an incredible story. Do you have anything else? And she said... We've been waiting a hundred years for someone to write this story. Come and see me. You can have everything. And she was a bit, she's a bit of the, it's kind of like a family archivist, I suppose. And she had his letters, bits of his aircraft, painting. I mean, it was just so incredible. And, and not only that, but she said, take it away. You know, be back when you finish with it, but take it away and write the story. And I just was like, this is as good as it gets. 
Is that a, is that a good enough? Okay, sound? that's a good, I'm, I'm interested. You've got me now. So tell me about okay. So tell me about the this 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 young man who's uh, who goes missing in in the second in the first world war. Yes, well, he's, he's called Francis Mond. He's the son of a very very wealthy family. They set up a kind of chemical business in the 19th century, which became the biggest one. In fact, in the end, it became ICI. So a very well-to-do family, and he um, uh, he he. He was serving in, in the artillery uh, at the outbreak of war, but transferred, you know, a man of action. He loved racing his motorbikes, was forever ending up in court being fined for speeding and things on his motorbike. Uh, man of action, loved it, loved the idea of flying, joined the Royal Flying Corps. And he went out in 1915, and I have his original logbooks, and it just talks about, you know, flying, in, in it, learning to fly, obviously, first of all, but then the sort of stress of combat. And he crashes um, in September 1915. And this is his way out. Whether we would have wanted it, I don't know. But at that point, he, he just it's just a, a magneto failure in the aircraft. It crashes into the ground. He's severely um, shell-shocked by it. And he's basically given an out. You know, he doesn't, he's not expected to serve again for the rest of the war. But come 1918, he goes back out again. He sees the situation on the Western Front. He knows this is an incredibly important moment for the British uh, British Army, and he says, I'm going to go back out there again. So he's traumatised by this crash and by the, all of his experiences flying. Um, and is that, but he, but he's allowed he's allowed to sort of re-enlist, is he? Yeah, well, he he's still in the Royal Flying Corps. He's working in a place in this kind of offices in London called in I forget the street now, but uh, yeah, he's working in kind of RFC offices. Uh, so he's still within the kind of framework of the Royal Flying Corps. But in in at the back end of 1917, he sort of says, "Well, I'll try flying again." So you can see in his logbook these kind of three. I mean, he's done sixty odd hours in the Western Front, and yet he's doing these little sort of five minute hops to get him back into it, slowly back into it. But again, there's no demand that he goes back to the Western Front. He could so easily be signed off for the rest of the war. It's so obvious that he's struggling. But by by March 18, he's flying greater distances and he knows what's happening and he says, I'm going to go back out. So I'm sure to the sort of chagrin of his parents, he, 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 he goes back to the Western Front. And there we have this amazing, complete, just a set of letters he writes where he, no holes barred. He talks about everything. And you think, hey, you're right to your mother. Very unusual. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about men being basically immolated by, you know, on, on crashing back at the base and, and, and dragging these people out trying to save them. They're dying. And then the next night, it's incredible. The next night, he talks about having a fancy dress party. He goes as Captain Hook. The whole squadron has a fancy dress party. And he goes along and he's got all the kit. And he's had things made up in the machine shop with a hook on his hand and does these little drawings in his letters and uh and it's just you think well how can you do that your friends have just died 12 hours before and you realize they all think they're going to die they're all in the same boat they just haven't they they're, you know they just haven't been killed yet and i looked up and uh, there's about 18 pilots in the squadron and within four or five weeks half of them are dead including francis so francis is killed in a dogfight over a place called Boozencourt on the somme um, and he's, 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 he's seen to crash. An Australian officer bravely goes out, retrieves his body from no man's land. And Angela, his mother, and his father, Emil, are told, we've got the bodies, they're dead, but we've got the bodies that will be now transferred down the line and buried. So the mother actually says at one point, at least I know we're going to have a grave to visit after the war. And then, after a few months, she says, where are the bodies? And they say, uh, we don't know. 
they've gone to a place we it, they just completely disappeared and that is the start of her journey her five-year journey against all the odds against everybody saying you'll never find him her journey to find her son come what may well uh, and where i mean how do you even start doing that <sighs> well she assumes he's been um he's been buried but for whatever reason the name has not been put above his grave um so her first instinct is to say well we've got to explore every cemetery in the locality of corby which is the nearest town um to where he was killed to basically find him and his observer two bodies buried as unknown rfc pilots or but obviously by sorry by this time of course we're talking raf um and and to and you know that the, the assumption is they will be there it's just a certain amount of legwork you've got to do but it's just nothing people go out even the australian officer returns to france in uh just after the end of the great war uh to look to see if he can find the bodies that he originally pulled out of the wreckage nothing i mean she she starts writing i mean it's just incredible Dan. She starts going, the more she gets thwarted, the more she just says, well, I've got to look further, I've got to look further. She starts writing to units that have battalions that happen to be in Corby around the time of her son's death. So she will get lists, long, long lists of names of every single person known to survive in that regiment. And she will write to every single one, I, mean, I don't think personally, but she orchestrates it to say, did you see any? And of course, they're all coming back saying, no, nothing, absolutely nothing. And so this frustration builds and everyone's saying, you're just wasting your time. But she won't leave it alone. She wants to find her son. And so does she, what does, uh, what, what's, the, what's the breakthrough? The breakthrough is, and it's funny, you say, I, I look at it, and like maybe it's because I know what happened. Like Somebody says to her, have you thought that he, they may be buried um, under other names, that there may have been some sort of misidentification. And it seems logical, it seems obvious that you would sort of think about that. It would take three years to get to that point, but it does with her. She's so convinced that she will find them. Um, that she, but that's an avenue she doesn't explore. And she suddenly goes, wow, okay. And she starts looking at all the aircraft shot down in the vicinity on the 15th of May, 1918 exploring what happened to each of those aircraft. Of course, you know, eventually she pins it down to, to two other pilots called Aspinall and Dulacour, who are brought down, um, according to all the records, uh, in behind German lines. And she thinks, well, hang on a minute, if they're shot down behind German lines, how could they possibly be retrieved to be buried behind British lines? Yeah, if they're no man's end, fair enough. So she has to then start to prove that. So she has to start. She has to find pilots from the squadron who survived the war. Incredibly, again, incredibly detailed letters from our officers, a man called Chick, who talks about that incident in which Aspen and Delacour are shot down and says, we couldn't believe that their bodies were retrieved because we're convinced they were shot down behind German lines. But the vagaries of war throw up all sorts of things. So perhaps they were. And that's when she's thinking, hang on a minute. And, and I should just ask, I mean, this sounds like the most extraordinary body of historical research done on, on the Great War. I mean, does this survive? That archive of all her, you know, working out where all the battalions were and where all the aircraft, that all survives, does it? All there. All there in a private file at the Commonwealth War Graves. All her correspondence with the, the you know, with the, 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 the sort of 
the military and with the you know the Royal Flying Corps and with anybody who will listen to her, frankly, all of it is there. So that gives you the all the the backstory and also the kind of resistance. The Imperial Wargraves Commission at that time, as now the Commonwealth, the kind of resistance to going around exhuming bodies which have already been identified as somebody else. Obviously, to save the families of those who think those are their sons. But also, there's a sort of institutional resistance to admitting to, to having made errors and mistakes. And there were a lot of them, more than people think. Is this, is this going on against a backdrop? I mean, there just must have been mums and dads and brothers and sisters and sweethearts just doing just scouring France and Belgium in this period. Was this, was this kind of a... This is an extreme example, but this is quite a normal activity, is it? Uh... Normal? I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly small. I mean, there were thousands, tens of thousands of people who had no, had didn't, simply did not have the financial wherewithal to, to, to conduct a search like this. I mean, let's be fair. She had the capacity, the money to do this. Um, and she could pull on fate. She could ask people who probably wouldn't have answered letters that to, to people, you know, who were just really poor and lost their husband in 1917. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that there were tens of thousands of people who simply did things like leave their back door open in the hope that their missing son would one day walk through the door because they simply they didn't have the money to go to, to France and scour every cemetery or pay somebody else to do that. So um, it, it, there were a small number of people who, who, who decided they wanted to search for their sons. Um, but numerically, we're talking dozens maybe low hundreds or something like that, because it took so much. I mean, there were so many people who never went to the Western Front to visit the graves, and they could not afford it, or they couldn't afford the time off work. So um, thousands of people would like to have done this. Only very few actually ever managed to do it. And very, very few. I mean, you can count them on one hand, people who actually discovered the whereabouts of their their, lo- their loved ones. Yeah, so let's get back to her story. So she identifies this other pair of aircrew who she thinks c- can't be buried behind allied lines did does she how, what, where, how does she proceed from there well she she contacts former members of of aspinall and de la Cour's, um squadron and they say they, they produce letters they write um statements saying we were amazed that they were ever picked up but we just put it down to the vagaries of war uh, but and she presents that as as, as evidence that this there has to be a mistake here but um, she, it, there's a resistance, I say, to 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 admitting failure, uh, to admitting mis- admitting to a mistake, and so they're told, right, you have to get German combat reports to clarify that this is in fact the case. She then says she has to write to Berlin. She's told there's no chance you're going to get a reply from Berlin, not at this time, not in the early twenties with the political situation. Uh, but she manages to find the pilot who what? shoots down Aspinall de la Cour, and he says. I shot them down. I saw them go down behind German lines. And that really does clinch it because there's just no way they could have been picked up. Um, but of course, then, the, the, the you know, she's told, well, Aspinall has to agree to this. You know, you, you we won't just, you know, if, if he says no, we, we still won't exhume. Uh, but Aspinall says, like, he looks at the evidence and he, it's pretty conclusive. And Aspinall is, a, is the parent or the... That's the, yeah, his fa- the father... The father of the... Of the yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah, Captain Aspinall's father has to agree to the exhumation. And he get, he say, the evidence is just so clear um, that he agrees to it. And then in, 19, in March 1923, armed with 
all the medical details they need. I mean, teeth and old fractures from childhood and height and details. They go to the cemetery, exhume the bodies, and they have to get in and get dirty in terms of just going, is this your son? So she's present. Oh, she's there. She's there with with, uh, Captain Aspinall's father. And he looks at the body, he examines the body, says, this isn't my son. And she then has to confirm that it's her son. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What condition would a body be in? Pretty ropey, pretty ropey. It, there was no uniform on it. It was, it was, it was, it was naked, but it was, it was already a skeleton. But there was still a lot of hair. Hair color, of course, uh, was important. Um, there were, cert- I mean, they had to look at, look at the teeth. I mean, so imagine you have to basically pick up the skull and go right. Let's have a look at the, the teeth here. Which ones have got fillings in? Um, I can only imagine how horrific that was. But she finds her son. But the incredible thing, one one of the things that is so interesting about the story is that there's this kind of idea of closure. She's found her son. Her journey is over. But it isn't over. It's never over. And this came back to me, came home to me, because there's one person alive who grew up with Angela, and this is her granddaughter. She's 91 years old, a lovely, lovely lady called Ursula. And I went to see her, and she said, I had no idea my grandmother had even lost a son in the Great War. But it looked to me that she'd had a life of tragedy. She said, it looked to me like she'd been crying for a thousand years. And she said, and Emil and Angela bickered. They argued all the time. 
at the dinner table, one would say white, the other would then say black. If she had a party, Emil just went upstairs to the top floor and disappeared. She, I couldn't understand there's such antagonism between them. And she said, um, but there are photographs right at the end of their lives where there's a kind of the, a rapprochement there. They've, they've not had closure, but they've learned to understand where they are, to live with the horror of what they've been through. And there's a real affection in these photographs that belies the fact that only years before they were sat at the day, dinner table arguing at anything. And she says they came together at the end, but it took 20 years to do that. And therefore, you know, don't believe that closure just closes the door on these events. It never does. And so that's an amazing additional piece to the book that I could explore um, because I think it's such an important thing. We use words like closure way too easily. It, it isn't. Also, Richard, you know, we are so guilty, aren't we, sometimes talking about the big stories of the First World War, this division, that division, 60,000 losses. And it just it's always amazing in the work you do in the veterans talk to that every one of those losses is a kind of life-changingly terrible event for mum, dad, siblings, granddaughter, you know, so that, that granddaughter's life has been affected and who knows, she's then affected other people around her. So these yeah. these echoes are continuing to the present day. You are so right. You're more right than you realise. Her search actually, I mean, you're looking at history, you're trying to interpret history from basically 100 years ago, but it's very clear from what Ursula said that her search also helped undermine, even destroy the rest of her family. She had other children. And there she was obsessing about one son who was she knew he was dead. He wasn't coming back for five years at a time where her youngest daughter was aged 12, uh, 10, 12. Uh, another son, you know, 12, 14. And it had the effect that you know, one, one committed suicide in the late 1920s. Another drank himself to death. Uh, another just kind of lived this sort of high-octane racing car lifestyle, but without any focus in his life at all, just wasted the money, blew everything. And the, and the, and, and the daughter, very unhappy marriages, never settled. Uh, you know, you know there, of course, there are other reasons for these things, but you can't help but feel that her obsession about the golden boy, the boy who had all the talents undermined everybody else too and drove her and Emil apart until the very until the very end just uh, as you and I often talk about when we're having a beer talking about the war but I mean it's just the, the gigantic wound inflicted on British society well, of course other societies as well but that you just wonder how long that whether whether we're still living with that who knows because we can't we tell you know of course we are that, that the, the effects of that war will cascade down the generations it will never leave us we, a thousand years time there will still be little effects from that war i'm absolutely convinced about it and i'm i'm fascinated by interviewing people now who are 100 or 90 talking about well you know you lost well, maybe it's got to be over 100 now to lost somebody in the Great War. But even if it wasn't a direct, you know, if it was grandmother's other son, you know, so an uncle of that person, you know, the effects that had on them in terms of 
of the way the grandmothers coped with, with their lives afterwards and the direct effect that had on them, the effect that the armistice every year pressed, they may have this incredible feeling of oppression on some people. Other children just basically abandoned because they were they became orphans very quickly. The father was killed, the mother died of a heartbroken heart. There are all sorts of stories where you just go, oh God, my heart bleeds for you because there wasn't the support you have now. People were hung out to dry and it was they were just it's miserable absolutely miserable richard you are um you've written so many wonderful books sold hundreds of thousands of copies of books about the first world what's your perception of where we are at the moment with the war did that was that centene was that closure are people sort of moving on now or is is this fascination for this appalling conflict undimmed it ebbs and flows I mean, I always tell the story of 1986 being on the Somme and a priest there said, I'd like to welcome you all today, 70th anniversary of the Somme, Battle of the Somme, the veterans there. And he said, you know, I'd like to welcome you. there were, I don't know, probably about 500 people there. In 1991, there were 800 people. But that priest in 1986 said something that really hit home. He said, I was here in 1976 and I was on my own. I was on my own. So the Great War ebbs and flows. And we've had this incredible renaissance in interest in the Great War over the last 20, 25 years. And I don't kid myself that it's not going to drop off again. Now the centenary has passed, you know, television moves on. You know, there will be a hiatus, but programmes will come back. Other ideas will come to fruition. And we will continue our fascination with the Great War. Um, But we won't ever escape it. Or at least our generation, the generation that follows won't escape its effects, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, should, can we show? Let's show off some of the objects. Sorry. Mm, yeah. um, so, what have you brought with you? Okay. So, what we've got here, uh, just a couple of objects I've bought. Um, this is the letter written by Emile Mond uh, to his son on the eve of his son's death. Um, you can see it obviously arrived at the squadron. They've written deceased, fifteenth um, of May. The incredible thing is that. Um, Francis Mon was killed. His plane was seen to crash at 11.30 a.m. on the 15th of May. Emil Mond took this letter to Pilbara Post Office where it was franked at 11, precisely 11.30 a.m. on the 15th of May. And the British Army worked to, French time, to, to English time. So it was precisely, it's not an hour's difference. It is to the minute when he's handing this letter over to the postmistress that his son is killed. It is extraordinary. And you couldn't make it up. You put it in a film and say, oh, you've just done that for an artistic effect. And these two other objects were picked up by Angela from the scene of the crash. The plane was called Caesar. And that was the name of it. And this um, uh, is part of the propeller. I, I, I'm a bit dubious as to whether it is part of the propeller. It seems a bit thin and lackluster, but... Um, this on here says it's part of the propeller from from uh, Francis Mon's um, plane, and here's sort of some of the sort of retention wires that you'd have maybe between the. This is her scouring the battlefields. This is her scouring the battlefields because she bought what she did was she actually bought the field on which his plane was cr- on, on which his plane crashed, uh, and she built a memorial there, and that memorial is still there at Boussincourt, um, slightly under threat. So I'm hoping, in a sense, that. Um, 
this story will keep that memorial there because there's a kind of idea to shift that memorial into the village so it's out of harm harm's way. Um, but the, the the I've worked out that the actual memorial is pretty well bang on within two or three meters at best uh, the location of the plane crash. So um, I'm very keen that that memorial stays there. And she obviously went to that site. The, the plane was still there. The wreckage was still in the field when she first went there in the early 20s. And she picked up these two items from the aircraft. Um, and, yeah, there's a special resonance. Um, I mean, somebody who knows more about the Royal Flying Corps than me will tell me exactly what bit of wire that is. But, um, yeah, extraordinary, tangible connection to that time. What we've got here is is the story. This the backbone of the book is the story of Angela's search for her son. But then I look also at the bigger picture. So every chapter you go into the modern story, you come out, look at the bigger picture. And what I want to do is not just to retell the story about how did the fence cemeteries form, how were the great memorials to the missing built. What I like to do and what I'm so passionate about is asking questions that no one else has asked, looking at things that people have never thought to think about so so you know for example the cemeteries you know what did the french farmers think about that what did the civilians think about having to give up their land for these people okay they were grateful for what they did but did you want your village surrounded by seven cemeteries you know what did the french government feel when we proposed you know, the canadians with vimy ridge or we proposed to tiapau it put pressure on the French to build equally big memorials because they were aware that in a thousand years, people say, well, the French didn't care about their dead very much. Look at all the British memorials. Look at the Menin Gate. And so this put pressure. There was a lot of antagonism, a lot of feeling that, hang on, guys, you know, you, you want to remember your dead, but you've got to keep things into perspective here and, and not undermine us or not surround our villages with cemeteries. You know, other questions like, how long do you look for the dead for? You know, they... Do you carry on looking ad infinitum? Where do you stop? And these are such important questions. So, you know, we stopped looking for the dead four years after the Great War, when they were still finding 500 bodies a week. It was announced in the press. So people were just bereft, just going, hang on a minute, this guy down the road has had his son recovered last week, and now you're telling me that my son, who might be recovered next week, won't be because you're going to stop looking? And the British government goes, yeah, we have to stop looking. Because to find 500 bodies, we're employing thousands of men. The economy simply cannot support this. We cannot just keep pouring money in, looking for the dead, albeit you might want to. You know, the incredible story. I mean, this is the best story. You know, they're building these cemeteries. They're planning those memorials to the missing. And in 1924, the Treasury says, need to cut back, guys. Shall we part abandon the cemeteries? Part of, I asked friends, when do you think they might have part abandoned or thought about part abandoning the cemeteries? People said, I don't know, 1970s, you know, winter of discontent, that kind of time. I said, no, now try 1924. When they're going, we've got to save a load of money. We suggest what you do is go in inside the grass twice a year, but leave everything else to nature. Uh, Kew Gardens, can you give us a report on this? And it's serious. They are deadly serious. And Kew Gardens come back and go, if you do that, you'll get water ingress into the stones. They'll all start cracking. Complete false economy. Do not do it. Go, well, maybe we can just rip up all the grass and gravel it. That would save us a bit more money. I mean, these were real issues that nobody ever thinks. They talk about, you can read any book you want about how the cemeteries came about, about Lutgen's fantastic work and everything else. But you don't read those stories. 
And those are the ones that absolutely tick the box for me. I love them because I know nobody else, else has looked at them. And that absolutely was jaw-dropping when I realised that quickly after the war for, for, for reasons of economy, because the economy was dying on its you know feet, that we would have to possibly abandon them before we'd even completed them. So that is the other side to this story. There are all these kind of questions I look at in this book, as well as this amazing single story about Angela Mon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.